Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I would very quickly like to thank everyone who wrote to me over the last week since my conversation with Grant Ackett's aired. Having listeners like you that enjoy the show is why I do this, and also, again, I would like to thank Chef Ackett's for taking the time to talk to me. I would also like to say that Let's Talk About Chef is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you can think of to listen to podcasts. So if you can take the time to rate and review the show on whichever platform you listen to us on, or you can take a few seconds to tell someone about the show, we would be really grateful. Word of mouth is what has grown this podcast to where it is in such a short period of time, and it is so much fun hearing from listeners all over the world. If you want your restaurant to be shout out or to write to the show for any reason at all, you can email letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me personally on Instagram at chefbrianclark. I love hearing from listeners, and I always write back. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Human beings have always been very good at one thing, fighting with one another. Our entire history is littered with wars and battles, and as far back as we have been able to write down our stories, there have been accounts of us trying to destroy one another. Over the past 3,400 years alone, humans have only entirely been at peace as a species for 268 of them. We have only had peace for 8% of recorded history. It's estimated that over 1 billion people have been killed fighting in wars since the concept was invented. We fight, and we fight a lot. Of course, most of the time these wars have been for political reasons, disputes over territories, money, oil, or control. There have been entire generations of people that have never known anything but fighting and devastation. And of course, when looking at the most infamous, World Wars I and II, the rest of the world was trying to stop Germany and its axis of evil from world domination. We fight, and we fight a lot. War, despite being a destructive and horrific thing, somehow has become something that is somehow noble. A fight that is greater than ourselves. It's a higher purpose. Sacrifice for the greater good. The reasons that we go to war and fight can be for our countries, for freedom, for peace. All justifiable causes. Reasons that it might make sense to create weapons and battalions. But we have also started wars over food. Throughout history, there have been several times conflicts erupted over what we eat, food becoming the reason that ships were armed and armies started marching. It's strange to think that people have put their lives on the line. Countries have rounded up the troops to go to battle for food, but it's happened. Would you kill for a meal? Would you fight over sustenance? Is food the thing that I think about most and chefs like me worship and prepare every day worth fighting over? Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we're talking about the food that started wars. I'm a foe. 
The one thing that we tend to not think about when the world wars ended is what the troops did when they returned home. Once the ticker tape parades stopped and the streets emptied of the adoring public, those lucky enough to somehow survive the conflicts in Europe had to go back to the lives they lived before and into a world that despite wishing and hoping for their safe return had somehow managed to move on and survive without them. In Australia, after World War I, the Australian government had a problem when it came time to find jobs for the men who made it back from the trenches. And so in a stroke of brilliance, they decided to give these men land that they could farm, affording these survivors a quiet life in the country growing crops, a world away from the machine guns and bombs that they had lived with for the past four years, a world away from conflict. By 1920, the government had purchased over 90,000 acres of land to give to its soldiers, and still they needed more. So they started to place veterans in remote areas around Perth, on land that was nearly impossible to farm with no experience and basically no water. Despite the problems with the land, the soldiers began to till the ground and plant wheat, all of them strangers, and this was now their land. And while they began to notice as they stood there in their newly planted fields in isolation that they were far from alone. Without knowing it, the Australian government had placed these men into land that was run by tens of thousands of emus. The large flightless birds, these emus had used these areas as breeding grounds for thousands of years. And for some reason, there were now thousands of acres of wheat growing and the emus had an all-you-could-eat buffet. Because of the access to a never-ending supply of wheat plants, the emu population began to explode, jumping to triple the 10,000 they had been only two years earlier. Emus, for those of you who can't picture one in your head, are six feet tall. They weigh up to 100 pounds and live for 20 years. The females can also lay up to 10 eggs at a time, and they can run 30 miles an hour or 50 kilometers an hour. By 1922, the farmers would go to sleep at night with their fields growing healthy and abundant, and by the time the sun rose the next morning, they would wake up to virtually all of their plants eaten down to the root, and the rest had been trampled under the birds' feet. Being trained riflemen, these veterans began to try and shoot the birds to shrink their numbers, and that was where the problems began. Emus are apparently impervious to bullets. While it may be easy to shoot a turkey with one shot, an emu can withstand up to 20. Ammunition very quickly ran out, and so in an act of insanity, the Australian government declared an all-out and very real war on the emus. Legions of troops would show up in the fields with machine guns and thousands of rounds of ammunition. They would wait hiding a few miles away from the flocks of thousands, and then once the emus made their way close enough to the waiting army, they would start to fire. The panic from the gunshots would make the thousands of emus scatter in all directions and all of them running at breakneck speed, and they were also apparently bulletproof. On one occasion, although the army was firing tens of thousands of machine gun rounds into the thousands of emus, only 10 died. The rest ran away. The media in Australia had a field day with that story, and I quote, The emus have proved that they are not as stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has a leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird standing fully six feet tall who keeps watch while his fellows bust themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives the signal and dozens of heads stretch up out of the crop. A few birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the woods. The leader always remains until its followers have reached safety. 
The army and its emu war were the laughingstock of the country. They tried gunning them down from moving trucks, but the emus could outrun the trucks on the rocky terrain. On the one occasion that they were able to shoot one bird that was running alongside the convoy, as it died, it veered left into the truck, destroying its steering column and sending troops flying out of the back into the sand. On November 8th of that year, it was reported that Major Meredith's army had used over 2,500 rounds of ammunition and had successfully killed 200 birds. 200 out of the 30,000. The next week, thousands of more bullets and man-hours were spent shooting at the tens of thousands of emus, only killing 40. After a month, they had only killed 100. Accepting defeat, the Australian government publicly stated that they had lost the war against the emu, packing up and going home. Major Meredith, at the end of his rope and facing severe public humiliation, gave a statement to the press. If we had had a military division of bullet-carrying capacity birds, we could face any army in the world. They could face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulu warriors that even bullets cannot stop. The emus won the war, and they quietly ate the rest of the wheat. The French take baking very seriously. To them it's not a craft, it's an art, a way of life. If you've been lucky enough to walk the streets and markets of Paris, then you will know exactly what I am talking about. Everywhere you look, you see baskets filled with fresh bread, counters covered in croissants and pastries. But you don't need to go to Paris to eat traditional French bread. And in history, as the world changed with boats making their way across the oceans, the French took their baking with them setting up shops and bakeries all over the world. And one such bakery caused a war between Mexico and France. In the years following the Mexican independence from Spain in 1821, rioting, looting, and fighting would erupt between the rebels and the Mexican army. One day the fighting took place in front of a French pastry shop in Mexico City that was owned and run by a French immigrant chef named Ray Montel. As the fighting turned to looting, the front window was smashed and the bakery was destroyed. Raymontel, not knowing who to turn to for help, asked the Mexican government for assistance in rebuilding his bakery. After all, it was technically the Mexican military that had destroyed his shop. The Mexican government said a very quick no. They would not be held responsible for the damage. And so being a proud French man, Raymontel took the case directly to the King of France, King Louis-Philippe. The French king was disgusted by the treatment of the baker and his bread, and so the French king demanded that the Mexicans pay off the debt they had incurred during the Texas Revolution a few years earlier, a whopping 600,000 pesos, as well as 60,000 pesos for Ray Montel and his bakery. That might sound like a lot of money, and it was, especially when you take into consideration that Ray Montel's bakery was only worth 1,000 pesos, not 60,000. 
The Mexican government was quick to tell the French to piss off and declared war on France. In retaliation, the French Navy began a blockade with their warships along the Gulf of Mexico from the Yucatan Peninsula to the Rio Grande, even involving the United States who sent one single schooner armed with men to help in blocking off supplies to the country. As tensions mounted, the Mexican president ordered the conscription of all men who could bear arms, and as the Mexicans built their army, the French Navy bombarded the port city of Veracruz within days. The French Marines raided the city and captured nearly the entire Mexican Navy. Desperate to repel the French invaders, the government called upon its retired war hero, Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, basically Rambo. The former military general who had lost the war over the control of Texas to the Americans came out of retirement and gathered an army of loyal Marines who had all fought and lost beside him in Texas. They rode towards Veracruz, driving the French out of the city who ran scared of the sheer brutality that they were witnessing. As Antonio rode his horse, a man possessed by hatred after the last remaining French sailors, a ship fired a cannon directly at him filled with shrapnel and the general fell his leg having to be amputated, which he then took home and buried in his back garden. Four months later of fighting and shooting, the pastry war ended. The British, tired of watching these two countries fight over bread, decided to pay Mexico's debt to the French and also included the cost for Raymontel's bakery. The French left Mexico behind, taking Raymontel back with them. And watching one-legged from the shore as the ships left was the General Antonio. Fighting against the French over pastries had earned him the nickname the Napoleon of the West, and he was quick to remind everyone that he had lost a limb in service of his country. Because of his war hero status and serving during the pastry war, in 1842 General Antonio became the president of Mexico. On the day he was inaugurated into office, he had his leg that had been blown off by the French cannon dug up and proudly carried to Mexico City in a carriage sitting on a gilded pillow where it was buried with honors in a military cemetery. Years later, the general was taking a lunch break during a battle against the United States during the Mexican-American War. Without warning, the American troops made a sudden advance and the general was forced to retreat on horseback, leaving behind the prosthetic wooden leg that he wore ever since his leg was blown off. The prosthetic leg was captured by gunners from the Illinois Infantry and proudly brought home to America. If you are in Springfield, Illinois, you can go and see the general's leg. It lies in the state capitol as a trophy of war, a leg that was blown off of a war hero because of pastry. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. I love watches, and I collect watches. I wear a different watch on my wrist every week while I'm out to dinner or cooking or working in my kitchen, but a few months ago I received a Vincero watch and I haven't been able to wear anything else since. I get compliments on my watch constantly, and it is held up to the heat and steam of the kitchen better than any other watch I have ever worn. Vincero makes super high quality and amazingly crafted watches. They spent over 10 years designing and sourcing only the best materials for their watches, and at some point along the way decided to save you the customer and fellow watch fanatic a lot of money by cutting out the middleman and selling their watches directly to you from their website. Right now, listeners of Let's Talk About Chef can get 20% off their entire first purchase by using the offer code CHEF 
That's C-H-E-F at checkout. If you want to get 20% off your purchase, head on over to VinceroWatches.com. And now, back to the show. It's important to remember that we listening to this podcast and me recording it are very, very lucky. We live in a world where a food price rising doesn't really affect us too much. Of course, we notice that coffee gets more expensive every now and then. And we may not reach for the $6 cauliflower while grocery shopping. We'll just wait till next week when it goes on sale and buy it then. We live and I work in a world where food is everywhere. There are over 73,000 restaurants in my country of Canada alone, and well over 40,000 grocery stores. In America, there are over 650,000 restaurants. Food is not hard to come by, and we can afford to pay for it. In a lot of the world, that really isn't an option. Recently in the Sudan, over 2 million people have died from hunger during the Civil War. In Somalia, the militant Islamic group Al-Shabaab blocked food aid from reaching the country's people who it wanted to suppress. When the young men couldn't eat, they joined the terrorist group just so they wouldn't be hungry, not caring who they were told to fight. That's kind of scary. It's nice to think that wars over food are a thing of the past, that we have learned from our mistakes, but the harsh reality is that for most of the planet, the effects of climate change are going to make access to food something that we will be fighting over and fighting a lot over. I know that saying the words climate change means that a lot of you are just going to go, oh God, not another one and turn this off. But just give me a second. We only have to look at 10 years ago when a global spike in food prices caused riots across the planet from Haiti to Bangladesh. When a heat wave in Russia not too long ago meant people in Libya had to pay double for bread because they couldn't grow wheat, it means and matters a lot. And as the planet grows warmer, the prices will skyrocket. North Americans right now spend around 10% of our earnings on food. But for the 2 billion people who live in poverty around the globe, they have to spend up to 70% of their income on food. It is easy to ignore this. It's easy to forget that we are so lucky to live here and then just move on with our lives. We have our temples of dining. We have our stores filled with the bounty of the world. Who cares about the other side of it? But eventually, the wars will stop being over there and they will come here. Eventually, the sheer amount of fresh water and vegetables and food that is available to the people of my country will prove to be too good of an opportunity to pass up for some opposing suffering nation, and Canada will be invaded. It is going to happen. Not soon, but eventually it will. Climate change will actually turn my country into something similar in climate to California, while the rest of the world burns or gets flooded, Canada will basically become a paradise. We'll have a year-round growing season, a warm climate, a virtual, virtual Eden. What do you think is going to happen while the rest of the world watches us eat and live in paradise? We as a species like to fight. We are good at fighting, and we have always done it. We have fought for ridiculous reasons and for noble ones. 
We have fought for control, for gold, for salt, for bread. We have fought over emus, Franz Ferdinand getting shot in the head, and we have fought over nuclear weapons. The Second World War ended almost 75 years ago. And it ended because the Allies rallied and managed to stop a mustache psychopath from taking over the world because he hated most of the people on it. But the next world war won't be because of that. It won't be over politics, bloodlines, money, or oil. It won't be because one race hates another one, or because a king slighted another king. It will be over food. It will be over eating. And it is going to happen. The World Bank and the United Nations have already said that there won't be enough food to feed the planet by 2050. Some experts say that the food crunch will start by 2030. That's 10 years from now. But instead of spelling doom and gloom and ruining the rest of your day, I would like to propose that instead of crying to the sky and begging forgiveness for the selfishness of humanity, that we might try a different approach. I don't have the answers. I don't think anyone does. The only thing that I can think of to do is enjoy your next meal. Enjoy that glass of wine, that dinner out with friends, enjoy cooking at home. Enjoy every single second of grocery shopping and looking over a menu at a restaurant. Because it's going to end. And it's going to end soon. Hopefully, we'll be able to figure something out and it won't happen in your lifetime. But honestly, it's probably going to happen in your lifetime. Food is going to become very quickly the most expensive commodity on the planet. It will cost so much money to eat that we won't be able to afford to go out. Restaurants will become a thing of the past. There's not really anything you or I can do about that anymore. So, fuck it. Let's have fun. And eat like you're going to war. Because we all are. Just not yet. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to thank Vincero Watches for letting me talk about them this week, and remember to use the promo code CHEF to get 20% off your first purchase. I want to give this week's shout-out to Guri Restaurant in Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil. This place is amazing, and they have been supporting the podcast for a long time, and please check them out on Instagram. Or if you are in that part of Brazil and want to stop by for some amazing food, please say hi from us and thanks to them for writing in. If you want to have your restaurant shout out on the podcast, you can write to us for that or any other reason to let's talk about chef at gmail.com or you can follow me personally on Instagram and DM me at Chef Brian Clark. Thanks so much for listening to the 30th episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And until next Thursday, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service. And have a great week. You clash your cast your country, set your name or your tribe. There's people always dying, trying to keep them alive. There's bodies decomposing in containers tonight and in abandoned buildings. Has made a mural of a Mexican girl With 15 cans of spray paint in a chemical swirl She's standing in the ashes at the end of the world Four winds blow